World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Justice really only works in a system where people, political parties and leaders play by the rules. When the system works, crime, ideally, is followed by punishment. But what happens when the system is challenged? When order is replaced first by disorder and chaos, then by lies, and then war. I'm Ora Ogumbi, and you're listening to The Weekend Intelligence. In this episode, a tale about a nation's search for answers and justice. For nearly 10 years, the economist Noah Snyder has been following the story of MH17, the passenger plane shot down over eastern Ukraine on July 17, 2014. All 298 people on board died. From the day the plane crashed into the sunflower fields of eastern Ukraine to the trial in the Netherlands last year, Noah has been reporting on the fate of MH17. A fate that matters to the fragile order which governs over us all. We all have an, um, like a little cavity here. Quite tight. Yes, yeah. and it, I get cramps there. Mm-hmm. And then I know that there's someone with me who has passed away. Mm-hmm. And then I have to connect with them or I want to connect with them. I found myself one clear summer day nearly a decade ago in a busy flower shop in Holland, surrounded by white orchids, sitting with a medium and communing with a dead man. Sometimes I have to sit and have to prepare, like some sort of meditation, but um, it also comes like it pops up. The man's name was Kors Hilder. He was Dutch, a jokester, and a drummer in a band called Vast Countenance. Elsa, the medium, had known Kors since they were teenagers. They used to walk home after hitting the bars and contemplate life, the stars, the universe. The feeling of his presence is you have to smile when, when he's around. Because it's such a, a, a nice and comfortable and um, great energy mm-hmm. that he, you have to smile. <laughs> that day, Elsa sat with her legs crossed and her fingers intertwined in her lap. Her long black hair was parted to the right. Her dark brown eyes vibrated with an intensity that made me think that maybe she really could speak with the dead. Maybe she really had summoned Cor and his girlfriend. Are they uh, okay that their story is being told? Yes, 
they uh, uh, wanted to. They don't want to go in uh, that it's vergeten wordt, zeg maar. They didn't want their story to be forgotten, Elsa told me. That's what they just said. Yes. I am by nature a skeptical person. I'm not, for the record, a regular practitioner of the occult or a firm believer in the afterlife. But at the time, I was reeling from scenes I'd witnessed on a reporting trip in eastern Ukraine and looking for answers wherever I could find them. I can't say I fully believed that Cora heard me, but I definitely wanted to. I promised that day that I would tell his story. I just had no idea how long it would take me. On one level, it's a simple tale. The story of a drummer with a dark sense of humor who got unlucky. But it's also so much more. It's a story about justice and its many forms. About truth and its elusiveness. About loss and its unfillable voids. And it's a story about Vladimir Putin's cruel war against Ukraine and why it matters to the world. In the summer of 2014, things were looking up for Korskilder and his girlfriend, Nilce Toll. They just bought a new house. Nilce's flower business was taking off. The couple were planning a holiday to Bali. They loved to travel, but figured this would be their last big trip before settling down and starting a family. They bought tickets for a flight on Malaysia Airlines. Kor's friends ribbed him about it. A plane from the same airline, flight MH370, had just disappeared somewhere over Asia, never to be found. Kor laughed it off, though. It typically is kind of... Humor. Joke, yeah. joke yeah. to yeah. the people who are asking. Yeah, yeah. 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 Johan Molinar and Kor were bandmates in Vast Countenance. They'd been jamming together since they were teenagers. When you play so long together, you really feel each other very well. With, with, he really was very good at the... Uh, how do you call it? Well, the, the, the choir singing, you know, the second voice, harmonies. Uh, the harmonies. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be your torch when the darkness sets in. I'll lead you safely back As Kor's departure approached, the band was in the middle of recording its third album. He'd laid down a bunch of new drum tracks. He was stoked about their new songs. That's what we were doing, uh, and we were enthusiastically doing until like 17th of July. Yeah. Eleven days before Kor's trip, the band played a small show, an acoustic set, for Johan's father's birthday party. It was the last gig of the band with Kor as drummer. Then, on July 17, 2014, at 11.03 a.m. Amsterdam time, Kor, ever the comedian, posted on Facebook from gate G3 at Schiphol Airport. If it disappears, this is how it looked, he wrote, under a picture of a Boeing 777, with the blue and red stripes of Malaysia Airlines. It was, it was typically core, you know. He was uh, yeah. always a, a fun, fun guy, you know. He was always making jokes at everything. Friends commented on the post and wished him well. Happy holidays. No silly things, though. Don't tempt the gods, one wrote. Many of the other passengers had similar plans. Elsamik de Borst packed a purple suitcase and set out that day with her mother, stepfather, and half-brother for a holiday in Malaysia. She was 17 and was nearing the end of high school. She liked to play the piano, and she dreamt of one day maybe becoming an architect. 
But first came summer break. As she left that morning, she messaged her dad, Hans. She sent me a WhatsApp, we are leaving at 9. The taxi is coming here at 9 o'clock, and at 12 o'clock we, uh, we fly. Bye-bye. Uh, Elsa Meek, Kaur, and 296 other passengers and crew boarded Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. Kaur and his girlfriend sat in row 32. Elsa Meek and her family were towards the back in row 40. The plane took off at 12.31 p.m. local time and reached a cruising altitude of 33,000 feet for what should have been a routine trip. At around 3 p.m., MH17 checked in with a control tower in Dnipropetrovsk in central Ukraine. Romeo November Delta, Malaysian 1-7. Then it continued on its flight path over the Donbass region. A war had been raging there for several months. That same year, in the spring, Ukrainians had overthrown the government of their corrupt former president, Viktor Yanukovych. He had refused to sign an agreement to bring the country closer to the European Union. The revolution that year was named after the square where the protesters gathered, the Maidan, and also after the values they espoused, the revolution of dignity. All of this angered Vladimir Putin, Russia's president. The Kremlin responded by annexing Crimea, a peninsula in Ukraine's south, and fomenting a separatist rebellion in the country's east, where many residents preferred strengthening ties with Russia. I had been covering that conflict as a journalist from the beginning. I was a freelancer then, at the start of my career, just 23 years old, and I happened to be in eastern Ukraine that day. I started hearing reports of a plane crash. There were whispers that it was a civilian aircraft. I set out with a couple of colleagues to investigate. We drove through hardscrabble towns, past coal mines and factories belching smoke. We talked our way through separatist checkpoints where scraggly soldiers with AK-47s slung over their shoulders admonished us to Pishite Pravdu, to write the truth. Through the window I could see rows of sunflowers and poppies, resplendent yellow and blood red. We arrived in the village of Grabova just as dusk was falling. Mangled bodies and charred metal filled the roads. As I wandered the fields I noticed belongings that seemed out of place there. Eerie bits of ordinary life stopped in motion. There were postcards, there were guidebooks, there were rental car reservations. Wheels of Dutch cheese, cracked smartphones. There was a tan sun hat with black trim, fit for a trip to the beach. I spoke with locals, traumatized from watching the plane explode overhead and rain bodies onto their homes. I met a farmer named Victor, who lived just steps from where the main section of the plane crashed. We stood in his yard beside rusted metal gates. I scribbled notes on a small pad as we spoke. I didn't need to, though. The conversation burned into my memory. Who will explain this to their mothers, he said to me. What words could possibly explain this? What is the point of even having children anymore? Let this world degenerate and let the dinosaurs roam again. At least they didn't go around killing each other with weapons like this. We have become beasts. I tweeted from the scene, and within hours I was getting calls from CNN. I tried to convey what I saw to audiences around the world without breaking down in tears on live TV. 
I spoke with one of the, the first people on the scene, a freelance journalist uh, named Noah Snyder. Listen to what he saw. It's a gruesome scene. Uh, there's bodies splayed out through fields. Uh, people said the plane kind of exploded in the air and uh, everything rained down in bits and pieces. The plane itself, the people inside. The news reached Holland quickly. Johan, Kor's bandmate, was driving home from work. Some, it was high summer and sun was shining and first I heard a, a radio flash, you know, that the plane had uh, gone down, probably a Dutch plane. Mm -hmm. And then people started calling, uh, uh, you know, asking questions. Uh, do you know uh, what time Kor was flying? And, uh, when I got home around six, straight away it was clear that, that they were on the plane and uh, well, mm -hmm. that everybody uh, had uh, passed away. Well, then it was a really, really, really strange time, you know, that the world collapses uh, underneath you. Uh. Hans de Boers, Elzemiek's father, was on his couch, eyes glued to the Tour de France on TV. And a friend of mine called, you have to look at uh, the news because uh, plane shot down and he knew Elzmeek was going to Malaysia but he didn't know exactly which, which plane. But I had had contact with her that morning. Mm -hmm. So I knew uh, on the text, saw immediately that it was uh, wrong. There was only one plane to Kuala Lumpur. As soon as MH17 came crashing down, a battle over the truth began. Western and Ukrainian officials said that a surface-to-air missile fired from separatist-held territory caused the crash. Vladimir Putin, who at the time denied any involvement in the conflict in Ukraine, blamed the authorities in Kyiv. There was a moment when it seemed that the tragedy might open the world's eyes to Russian aggression. The sheer unbelievability of a passenger plane filled with innocent holidaygoers being shot out of the sky, if anything could galvanize global action to pressure Putin and stop the fighting, this was it. World leaders chimed in. Barack Obama, then America's president, made a somber speech at the White House. This certainly will be a wake-up call for uh, Europe and the world that uh, there are consequences to an escalating uh, conflict in eastern Ukraine. A few months later, Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister of Australia, which lost 38 of its citizens aboard MH17, pledged to aggressively confront Putin about the downing, using the metaphor of a tough move from Australian football. I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. Uh, you bet I am. Uh, I am going to uh, be saying to Mr. Putin, um, Australians were murdered. They were murdered by Russian-backed rebels using Russian-supplied equipment. But the world quickly moved on. The news cycle shifted to the next tragedy. America and Europe imposed a round of limp sanctions. Russia continued its advances in eastern Ukraine, eventually forcing the Ukrainian government to sign a poisoned peace agreement in Minsk in early 2015. The West breathed a sigh of relief and returned largely to business as usual with Russia. Nord Stream 2, a new gas pipeline connecting Russia and Germany, was launched just a year after the crash. 
Football fans from around the world descended on Moscow for the World Cup in 2018. I was based there at the time as a correspondent for The Economist, and I too joined in the revelry, dancing through the streets just steps from the Kremlin's red brick walls. It was all too easy to forget the havoc that its occupants had wreaked in Ukraine. When it became clear that a passenger plane had been downed, Igor Girkin knew that he had a mess on his hands. Girkin is a veteran of the Russian Armed Forces and Intelligence Services, who goes by the call sign Strelkov, or the shooter. Since his student days, he sought the restoration of the Russian Empire. He sports a bushy mustache and has a fondness for historical reenactments. He aided Russia's annexation of Crimea and later emerged as defense minister of the Donetsk People's Republic, a self-declared statelet illegally carved out of eastern Ukraine. He imposed a brutal wartime justice there. I once found documents in an abandoned headquarters that showed Girkin had been carrying out makeshift military tribunals based on Stalin-era laws. He was sentencing people to death for offenses as minor as stealing a pair of pants and two shirts. Hello? Hello, here As Kors Hilder and Elsamik de Borst were preparing for their summer holidays, Girkin had been pleading with contacts in Russia for heavier weapons. You hear him saying just that on intercepted phone calls later released by the Ukrainian authorities. On the morning of July 17, 2014, Girkin gathered his commanders at his headquarters in eastern Ukraine. A book a hulking Soviet-era surface-to-air missile system, which requires a four-person crew to operate it, had finally arrived from Russia. It needed to be dispatched to the front. As the separatist forces moved the book across Ukraine, they checked in by phone. One was recorded referring to their cargo cryptically as an igrushka, a toy. That afternoon, a social media page, believed to be operated by Girkin's supporters, posted a triumphant dispatch. They had downed a Ukrainian military plane near Snizhnoya, a city next to Grabova. They edited the post soon after to remove any mention of it. Later that day, Sergei Dubinsky, one of Girkin's deputies, tried to convince him that a Ukrainian fighter jet had shot down MH17. His men, he told Girkin, had only hit the Ukrainian jet in response. In the call, Girkin expressed skepticism of that version of events. He pressed Dubinsky throughout the night to make sure that the technica, the equipment, made it back to Russia. Lest they appear to be engaged in a cover-up, the separatists allowed international officials and investigators access to the crash site to recover the remnants of the plane. At this point, Russia could have simply fessed up to what was likely a tragic mistake. Accidents happen. Even civilian planes are shot down in error. America targeted an Iranian passenger jet in 1988 killing 290 people. Iran fired on a Ukraine International Airlines flight in 2020, killing 176 people. Both governments ultimately took responsibility. 
some Russians wanted the Kremlin to own up too. Novaya Gazeta, an independent newspaper, put the MH17 tragedy on its front page with the words, Forgive us, Holland. But Putin instead chose to lie. Now, as the investigation into the crash gets underway, Russia's defense ministry has provided evidence that Kiev may have had a hand in the tragedy. It has made public its own radar data from the area, and it shows a second aircraft in close proximity to the Malaysian plane. Ambassador Cherkin said there are many unanswered questions, uh, such as why did the Ukrainian aviation dispatcher send a plane or allow a plane to enter an insecure, dangerous territory? Ambassador Cherkin says the Ukrainian government has not been... The aim of Russia's propaganda campaign was not to convince people of a specific version of events but to sow confusion, to make people doubt that the truth itself was knowable. At a press conference in late 2014, Yerkin sat in front of a portrait of Putin and mused that the Ukrainian side organized the crash in advance as a massive provocation. The lies tormented the victims' relatives, and their loss was heavy enough already. Elzemik Debor's father, Hans, described the feeling to me when I first met him about a year after the crash. It it will never be the same. It feels sometimes like your uh, your arm has been uh, amputated. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that is, but it must be the same. A bit uh, bit of your body is gone. And I can compare it quite good, because in May, my father died. Now, you could accept that right away. He was fighting a few months. It was okay like this. But was but this you can never accept. You can only get used to the thing that she's not here anymore. Funerals had to be organized, often more than once, as many bodies came back in pieces. Belongings had to be reclaimed, Hans received Elzemik's passport and boarding card completely intact, as well as a ring she was wearing that day. And this was her ring. What is Else. Else. She got it from her grandma. So I got this back. Mm-hmm. She was identified on her ring and on her teeth. So that's a special ring for me. Amidst the grief, many of the victims' loved ones placed their faith in the justice system to deliver answers. At the same time, they wondered whether they could ever be satisfied. Nah. Yeah, I think I can now say I will be disappointed. Because what will be in there, it is a bug missile and it was uh, launched from the Schnizne village. That's the proof, and we have photos of it, and we have this and that proof. But, yeah, and what's the next step? World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world, and in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
As the world's attention shifted away from the gory scenes at the crash site, the wheels of justice quietly cranked into action. Several national and international bodies circled the tragedy. A joint investigative team, or JIT, was set up on the 7th of August 2014 by Australia, Belgium, Malaysia, the Netherlands, and Ukraine. The various officials and investigators had to recover remains, collect evidence, analyze the cause of the crash, and determine who bore responsibility. This was, understandably, not simple. For me, this part of the story begins with Alexander Hoog. I was born in the very far eastern part of the Swiss-German part of Switzerland. I was the oldest uh, of four. Hoog, a towering, unflappable man, grew up during the Cold War. He watched with hope as the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. I also remember that my parents traveled to Berlin and brought back pieces of the Berlin Wall, which I still have to this date. Um, so it was a time where one would look forward and one felt the horizon would widen. Yet for all the heady optimism about the inevitability of liberal democracy, Hoog soon saw that the continent's hard-won peace, prosperity and order still had to be defended. No one I know embodies the idea of a rules-based international order quite like Hoog. I first met him in the early days of the fighting in eastern Ukraine, where he was monitoring the situation for the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. They dispatched a monitoring mission after the Maidan revolution. Hoog had to lead his colleagues through the unenviable task of impartially documenting an increasingly chaotic situation, despite having a narrow mandate and no arms of their own. I often describe that we have first seen demonstrators with posters, uh, then these demonstrators had wooden sticks they turned into metal sticks, then those metal sticks turned into sidearms, those sidearms into Kalashnikovs, the Kalashnikovs into mortars, they into multiple launch rocket systems. It happened in very rapid sequence during that specific time. On the day of the crash, Hug and his team flew by helicopter from Kiev to eastern Ukraine, hoping to reach the crash site and record what happened. The last part of the journey took them by car, around the blown bridges and blocked roads of the war zone. We all had to wear our flak jackets. Uh, I'm a two-meter Swiss. Uh, there was no suitable size for me. Um, it came halfway just on top of my belly. The end of the flak jacket was there. Once Hug and his team made it to the site, they negotiated access with the jumpy separatist commanders and their Russian leaders. The OSC mission became a conduit for the work of the various international organizations trying to investigate. They also organized the recovery and repatriation of the plane's debris and its passengers' remains. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have been here yesterday. I remember watching Hug give an impromptu press conference at a train station not far from the crash site. Many of the bodies were being temporarily stored there. Uh, the OSC special monitoring mission to Ukraine. Uh, has now for the second time uh, monitored the situation of the refrigerated wagons here. We have seen them open, we have witnessed uh, the body bags inside. The first bodies made it back to Holland a week later. A nation in mourning. This is the image of heartbreak in the Netherlands, where a bittersweet homecoming is unfolding right now. But the process dragged on for months after that. Only once the wreckage was recovered did the investigation pass into its next phase. The Dutch Safety Board, an independent body, 
painstakingly reconstructed the plane. And in late 2015, I traveled to Holland to hear their presentation. The international investigation into the causes of the crash has demonstrated <coughs> that flight MH17 crashed because of a 9N314M warhead detonated outside the aeroplane above the left side of the cockpit. The board's chairman stood in a large hangar with the MH17 Boeing behind him. A patchwork of shrapnel-ridden pieces had been attached to a metal carcass. It looked a bit like a reconstructed but incomplete skeleton of a dinosaur in a natural history museum. Except these weren't fossils or facsimiles, but the same fragments I had seen in the fields of Grabova. It gave me chills. This warhead fits the kind of missile that is installed on the book Surface-to-Air Missile System. The board concluded that the weapon in question was a book, the exact missile system that Ukraine and Western governments believed had been delivered from Russia to the separatists in eastern Ukraine just ahead of the crash. Their findings rested in part on distinctive butterfly-shaped shrapnel found inside the pilots' bodies. The next step was finding the culprits. Several legal cases started including interstate trials between Ukraine and Russia at the European Court of Human Rights. There was another one at the International Court of Justice. But the Dutch prosecutors, led by the JIT, were the ones who focused on the most vexing questions, the questions of individual criminal responsibility. Who should answer for the murder of the 298 passengers and crew? Who gave the orders to fire the book? Who had responsibility in the chain of command? And were they liable, legally speaking, for the victims' deaths? The JIT team spent years gathering and analyzing evidence into the book's provenance and operations. We divided the whole investigation into several projects like forensic, uh, aviation, um, let's say the fact-finding, the weapon, uh, high-tech crime. Khedit Tiri was the lead investigator, steely-eyed, short white hair, straight from Detective Central casting. He had worked on organized crime in Holland, as well as international war crimes in Liberia and East Timor. MH17 would prove to be the last case of his storied career, and also one of the strangest. And yes, I think it's one of the first criminal cases I, I can remember that we, we haven't been able to go to the, to the crime scene. The JIT team had to piece together an eclectic collection of evidence. They had analysis into the debris that was recovered on site, but there were also reams of so-called open-source intelligence. It was an eye-opener how much information was available uh, on social media, uh, pictures, uh, videos, uh, tweets, zillow uh, messages, etc. But making images and messages like that stand up in court? That would be another matter entirely. Open source information is also, of course, open to manipulation. Thierry and his team had to validate every scrap. There's a really nice example uh, on the, uh, the video, I believe it's uh, taken in Makivka, where you see this car with the camera on board, and then they're driving and they pass, for example, uh, the gas station, and you see the prices. Then you check if the prices were the prices of the 17th of July, for example. We collected uh, satellite pictures. So you see, let's say, on the satellite pictures, the same situation as from the uh, uh, car. 
Crucially, investigators also heard anonymous testimony from dozens of first-hand witnesses. They included separatist fighters, men who were positioned near the missile launch site and involved in escorting the book out of Ukraine after the crash. They spoke despite the dangers involved. They wanted the world to know the truth. The job of convincing independent judges of that truth fell to the JIT's legal team. Dichna von Busselaer, the deputy chief prosecutor, led the investigation. Broad-shouldered with deep-set eyes, von Busselaer told me she had once dreamt of another future. I studied to be a professional dancer when I was younger. I was at the Royal Conservatorium to, be a, to become a ballerina. She switched to law only in university and took to it quickly. She had the right name for the job, Dichna, as in dignity. But the funny thing is that I think maybe the, after the first or two sessions there, I thought, I like this. This is about how we organize the world. And this is about how we live together. In many ways, the MH17 case went to the heart of those same questions about how to order the world that first drew her to the law. On one side was a Dutch society that sought to manage chaos by designing systems. They had dikes and dams to stop the floodwaters, laws to keep people in line, strict processes to keep justice on track. On the other side was Putin's Russia, where might makes right, justice is arbitrary, and punishment is handed down at the whim of those with power. Like many in Holland, von Busselaer also had a personal connection of her own to MH17. I was in Bali. I had flown that route a, a, a week before or something, also not having thought one thought about this war. And my daughter came running towards me because she had one of her best friends in that plane. And she was... Uh, one of her um, school friends went on her own to Kuala Lumpur to go there because she studied medicine and to go there to work in a hospital. Uh, and she, uh, yeah, she died. So, so my daughter was in sort of panic, and that's how I came to know about it. And I had spent that evening making phone calls with airlines to get her back uh, home. In the summer of 2019, the JIT announced murder charges against four individuals, three Russian citizens and one Ukrainian. Girkin, the defense minister of the self-declared separatist statelet, his deputy, Dubinsky, and two even lower-ranked commanders, Oleg Pulatov and Leonid Kharchenka. But all of the suspects were in Russia or Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine. And Russia, unsurprisingly, refused to cooperate with the Dutch. What's more, Russia doesn't extradite its citizens. So, the four men were tried in absentia. That meant that on the 9th of March 2020, when the criminal trial began, neither victims nor perpetrators were present in the courtroom. Sanjit Singh Sandhu, Bobby. Hamfaslin Sham Mohammed Arifin. In hearing after hearing inside the wood-walled chambers of the Shipple Judicial Complex, the JIT prosecutors steadily built their case. Judges and lawyers in the court wore black gowns with white pleated bibs. 
Relatives of the victims gave moving testimony about their loved ones and about their loss. Francesca Luisa Deferson. Yet as the truth about the crime came into focus, punishment remained a long way off. The defendants didn't appear too perturbed about the charges against them, and why would they? The long arm of Dutch justice could not reach into Russia. In cell phone footage from 2019, after the charges had been filed, Dubinsky can be seen drinking Jack Daniels and smoking cigars alongside another former separatist commander on a boat in Crimea. They toasted Girkin, who had become a prominent nationalist activist back in Moscow. He was pressing for Russia to finish what it started in 2014. And that, of course, is what Putin tried to do when he invaded Ukraine openly in February of 2022. In the fall of 2022, I flew to Amsterdam from Japan, where I'd moved to work as the Economist Tokyo bureau chief. On November 17th, eight years and four months after the crash, relatives, lawyers and journalists packed the court complex to hear the verdict. The court holds the proven charges so severe and the consequences thereof so grave that it holds that only the highest possible prison sentence would be appropriate punishment in retaliation of what the accused did and what caused so much grief to so many victims and relatives. MH17, the judges declared, had indeed been downed by a Buk missile system fired from separatist-controlled territory and delivered from Russia. Girkin, Dubinsky and Harchenko all bore criminal responsibility for the death of the 298 people aboard. Pulatov, a lower-ranking operative who had hired Dutch counsel to defend him, did not. The conclusion that the court imposes a lifelong prison sentence to Gherkin, Dubinsky and Karchenko. A sentence they almost certainly will never serve. Inside the courtroom, people hugged. Tears flowed. As we stood outside, in the chilly late afternoon air, the relatives I'd met earlier seemed relieved. Despite his earlier conviction that he would be disappointed, Hans de Borst seemed lightened, if only for a moment, in a way that he never had in the years I had known him. Does it feel satisfying? I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because justice has now been done. It's been spoken out by the only independent court we have. Now, perfect. For those involved in the legal process, like Dikna van Boselaer, the verdict was a vindication of their work. I'm satisfied, I'm um, relieved, I'm happy, and happy is a strange word because, you know, happiest doesn't fit this, but, you know, I think what the court did was that so many facts uh, that in a way we said it happened, they said it happened. And Yet at the same time, there was clearly nothing the Dutch court could say that would fill the holes the victims left behind. And in all honesty, had it even come anywhere close? I thought back to something von Bosler told me while the trial was still unfolding, about how justice could keep going into the future. Sometimes you hate systems, and sometimes there's also a power in systems, because this system could 
keep on doing this and just slowly, slowly, slowly uh, get there. And it's step by step and never say never um, because we have time. The system has time, maybe not me as a person, but the system has time. But if this was justice, it seemed at best incomplete. I could imagine Gierken and Dubinsky raising a glass of their own that night. As I stood outside the courthouse, beside the imposing stone walls, I found myself struggling to articulate conclusions. Uh, you know, I think in one sense, and clearly for some of the, uh, for many of the, the relatives, this was a, 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 a victory for that system, for that way of, um, that way of, of ordering the world. But um, there are still missiles flying into buildings today. Uh, I guess what I'm left wondering about is, in, in, in practical terms, what does this verdict mean? So let me try again, with the luxury of distance and an editing booth to draw more sharply those conclusions about MH17 and why the search for justice is so important, no matter how unsatisfying it may be so far. Think about it this way. Every day, thousands of planes take off and land from scores of different countries. Passengers like Kors Hilder and Elzmik de Bors, we all get on board feeling confident that we'll reach our destinations, no matter what might be happening on the ground below. In many ways, international air travel epitomizes the very idea of a predictable global system based on the rule of law. And in many ways, the downing of MH17 encapsulates how Vladimir Putin poses a threat not only to his own people, or to his neighbors, whom he considers his own people, but to Europe, to the world, to that very system. The tragedy of MH17 reminds us why the war in Ukraine is not only a struggle for territory, but also a battle over how to organize human life on earth and in the skies above. A choice between the order of a system based on the rule of law and the chaos of its absence. Do we want to live in a world without accountability? A world where borders can be changed by force and passenger planes shot out of the sky without consequence? But because the world missed the last wake-up call, the system is under ever greater strain. MH17 is now just the first war crimes trial of many that are certain to follow from the fresh atrocities Russian troops have committed in Ukraine. Yuri Belousov, Ukraine's chief war crimes prosecutor, told me he has a big to-do list. Just to give you figures, so by this morning, so we have 106,000 cases. So just 106,000, can you imagine that? The number of cases, yes. We have. They range from the massacre of civilians in Bucha in March of 2022 to the torture of local officials in occupied territories. For his country, Belarus have told me, the legal process isn't just about getting retribution. It's about what kind of nation Ukraine wants to become. We should have different standards than they have. Because if not, so we are not different. We are the same as they are, but we are telling the world that we are different. Ukrainians want to be a member of EU family. Russians, they do not want. 
We need to prove that we are reliable partners. On the 8th of February, 2023, von Boselaer announced that she, Derry, and the rest of the JIT team had officially suspended their investigation. The investigation has now reached its limit. All leads have been exhausted. She stated that there are strong indications that Putin himself made the decision to supply the separatists with heavy air defense systems. But those indications didn't rise to the high bar of evidence in a court. And besides, Putin, as a head of state, couldn't for now be charged with war crimes for the downing of MH17, at least not under Dutch law. Nevertheless, von Busselaer still believes that time is on the system's side. We know that the answers to our questions can be found in Russia. And as we have said many times before, solving these kinds of crimes take patience and endurance. Just consider the Lockerbie case, in which a suspect was recently arrested after 34 years. In that spirit, the JIT remains dedicated to the MH17 investigation. Just over a month later, the International Criminal Court in The Hague charged Putin himself with war crimes in connection with the deportation of children from Ukraine. While Putin is safe for as long as he stays on Russian territory, the charges shrink his world. They put him at risk of arrest if he ever visits any of the 123 countries party to the court. Justice found Igor Girkin in a roundabout way. In July of 2023, he was arrested in Russia but not for the actual crime of downing MH17. His offense was instead the arbitrary one of inciting extremism against the Russian state. The charges were part of a broader crackdown on nationalists who had been critical of the government for not going far enough in the war against Ukraine. Alexander Hoog, the Swiss mediator, left Ukraine after the OSC monitoring mission was disbanded in the wake of Russia's open invasion and he currently serves as the head of the Iraq program at the International Commission on Missing Persons. He was decorated by the Dutch king for his service to the victims of MH17. His acceptance speech carried a pointed message. Nothing we can do will ever bring back those who lost their lives on board MH17, but surely we owe it to them to do more to stop the ongoing slaughter in Ukraine. Hans de Borst, Elzemik's father still lives in the same house outside The Hague where I first met him in 2015. He left his job in banking. Attending to MH17 affairs took up too much time. And anyways, dealing with clients upset over interest rates came to feel meaningless. Over the winters, he works as a ski instructor in a small Austrian village where he once taught his daughter. Vast Countenance, Kors Band, plays on. They have a new drummer, and they ended up releasing the album they began recording before Kor died. It's called With Muffled Drum. If I listen carefully to one of the tracks, Solitary Man, I can just make out Kor's voice there on the harmonies. As for me, I'm recording this podcast in the winter of 2023 in a quiet office in Tokyo. There's hardly a more orderly city on earth. 
Every day, I enjoy walking the peaceful streets, and I try to remember how fragile that order is, how much work it takes to sustain. But I can't escape the feeling, as Putin's open war drags into its third year, that many people around the world are falling asleep again, that we are forgetting what is at stake in the sunflower fields of eastern Ukraine. This episode was reported by Noah Snyder and produced by Sandra Schmueli. The sound design was by Nico Rawfast and fact-checking by Joe Linus. The executive producer of The Weekend Intelligence is Gemma Newby. Thank you for listening to this episode. Tell us what you think at podcasts at economist.com and please come back for more. Jason will be here next week with a tale about penguins that gets right to the heart of America's culture wars. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.